Hey everybody, Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm a research evangelist. And uh, those of you who know me, they know that it's not in a religious term, but evangelist, the Greek, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news. So I like to think that I'm bringing the good news um, in research, uh, and particularly in lung cancer research. And so I like to interview people who are in the life sciences who are what I call brilliant, but not famous. And when I mean, what I mean by that is they're all famous in their work. They're all well-known and well-respected in their field and, and known amongst the community of, uh, of patients that they serve, but they might not be a household name if I ask my next door neighbor um, if they've ever heard of them. So my goal is to, is to introduce them to the world and tell a little bit about what the work that they're doing and some of the things that interest me. So uh, I'm super excited today to uh, have my guest. My next guest is uh, Dr. Henning Willers. He's a uh, He's the director of the Thoracic Radiation Oncology Program at Mass General Hospital in Boston, and he's an associate professor at the Harvard Medical School. Uh, Dr. Willers, he has a busy clinical practice focusing on the care of patients with thoracic cancers of various types while also spending time in the laboratory. He's active in clinical physics and biology research with the overarching goal of advancing precision radiation medicine. We'll talk about that today. That's very interesting. Um, so welcome to the program. Um, uh, great to have you here today. Dave, thank you very much for the uh, really kind introduction. Uh, it's, a, it's a great way to start the Monday and the week. Um, <laughs> highlight of the day already. Um, yeah, really uh, great to be here. I'm glad you reached out. I've, 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 I have to be ashamed to say that I only know of your good work through social media, via <laughs> Twitter, actually. So uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to learn more about you. I'm glad to uh, share a little bit about what we're doing and we'll see where it goes. Awesome. That's great. Thank you. And, and you're like one of the many people that I've met um, um, on Twitter. And as, as, uh, as I mentioned to you and my, my listeners know that I was treated at Mass General Hospital. So uh, we've had a, um, another guest uh, before and we'll probably have more in the future from, from MGH. Uh, but uh, radiation uh, medicine is something that uh, I'm really excited to learn more about because my treatment was a lobectomy. And so I did not have uh, any other care, thankfully. I'm very grateful for that. But uh, so that's, this is gonna be a really interesting discussion today. So first of all, um, why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey from, from Germany to Boston and to MGH? Um, it's a long journey. It might eat up a half an hour, <laughs> a lot of time, but uh, I've been in Boston since 96. So I, I did come from Germany. Um, I had been here as a student uh, in 1994, and I was just you know, blown away by by the city and and by the hospital and, and the people. And it, you know, it was really like a like a transformative moment. I kind of felt pulled in, hard to describe actually. And so, you know, I, I felt at the time, you know, this is where I want to be. And I got a little lucky along the way in getting you know research the research scholarship, uh, getting welcomed here in a lab by uh, Simon Powell, who was my PI and mentor, who's now the um, radiation oncology chief at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and then uh, was, was fortunate enough to be retained as faculty. So I've been here as faculty since, uh, since 2005. And, uh, you know, my origin is I'm a clinician. You know, I, I, that, that really what gets me up you know, every morning to know that I can potentially make you know, make a difference and, and help people. And, uh, but I figured out somewhere along the way that I also like to hold a pipette, and that it's actually fun to discover things on the bench. 
And so that's sort of my, my, <laughs> my, my second passion, if you will. And so again, I think I am fortunate that I, I, I have a lab still. I have great support by our former chief, Jay Loeffler here at MGH. And so I, I try to split my time in, you know, um, taking care of um, people with lung cancer and try to um, understand how lung cancers respond to radiation. And when they're not, how can we make things better? So that's sort of the, the main perspective, if you will. Yeah, and we, when we talked the other day, uh, we, um, I had asked you uh, how you split your time between treating patients and in the lab and, and how, you know, what's that, what's that percentage? You said hundred percent and hundred percent. I'm like, well, that's 200%. So I know you're a really busy guy. So, and, and you're passionate about, uh, about, uh, about your work. Well, it's driven and, by, you know, I mean, if you really want to do research, you have to do it most of the week. If you really want to do a really top notch research, I'm not saying that my research is not top notch, but I, I mean, you know, you, things take time and, uh, and you probably have to spend really four days a week on, on research to really, really, really get somewhere. But, you know, being born as a clinician, it's really hard for me to cut back and say, oh, I'm just only going to see patients one day a week or a half day a week or only once in a while. Very hard for me. So I'm kind of well, stuck between both worlds. I don't want to give up either. But it's sort of a limitation that the day has only, I don't know how many work hours it has, but there's a limit. Well, I have to say that one thing that's a many common threads, but one of the common threads with the guests on my show are this, the commitment and the, and the, and the passion and compassion for, for treating patients. And then, and I can tell you from a perspective of sitting on this side, how much we appreciate that and how grateful we are uh, for the commitment of people like you. So, so thank you very much for that. I just want to do a, 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 a real sincere thank you for that. Um, thank you. So let's jump in and talk about, you know, the basics of, of radiation medicine, radiation therapy. Uh, can you kind of give me an overview of that and the clinical practice of lung cancer? Yeah, maybe a little bit, because otherwise, without the basics, probably I won't be able to understand what our, I won't be able to uh, explain to you um, what my research is about. So you got to understand a little bit the basics. If I, if I venture off too far, just, you know, cut me off. But so to understand radiation is that... Um, you know, you need to break down the spectrum of, of, of lung cancer as we encounter it um, into sort of different groups. And because radiation is different role in different scenarios. And um, so most, most of lung cancer, unfortunately, a diagnosis is, is metastatic, um, meaning stage four can be cured. Radiation can be very helpful um, for people with stage four cancer in that, you know, you can use radiation to, uh, we say, palliate um, symptoms. You know, if you have pain somewhere, if you have difficulty breathing or, you know, uh, cough with blood in it, radiation is very good at, at, at relieving those symptoms or preventing symptoms. And increasingly, you know, in stage four cancer, it also has a role in helping, helping people live longer with their disease. As, as you know, from what you've done in the field is, I mean, the, metastatic lung cancer has been really revolutionized with immunotherapies, with targeted therapies. People now live many, many years where, you know, when I trained the average life expectancy of somebody with metastatic lung cancer was what, six to 12 months or so, right? And so um, radiation can still help uh, even in the sort of, especially 
in the era of immunotherapy and targeted therapy because cancers are unfortunately smart. They, they escape. They almost escape always whatever you throw at it and, and, and it grows back. And often it grows back only you know, in single spots in the body and then radiation can intercept it and get rid of these sort of drug resistant uh, regrowth. Um, so that's, that's one, one part of radiation. The other part is where we radiation, um, where radiation is used in curative intent. So cure means different things to people. Um, some people don't use the word because it can give you false hopes. You know, is cancer ever cured? I'd say yes, if you have localized lung cancer, so um, cancer that's confined to part in the chest, it can be small, to medium size, sometimes can be large. Um, and if you can't have surgery, in simplistic terms, then uh, radiation can get, rid of, can get rid of it. Radiation can get rid of 100% of the cancer cells in your chest. It needs a bit of help from chemotherapy and increasingly also immunotherapy, but it's the mainstay of curative treatment. And when you get rid of 100% of the cancer cells in your chest, cancer can grow back in your lifetime and you're cured. On rare occasion, you can get a second lung cancer independently, um, but that's a, different, that's a different thing. So, so radiation can be curative. And, um, and, uh, but it turns out that you know, the curative use of radiation, uh, cancers behave or respond differently when you treat them with radiation. Some, are, some cancers are very sensitive. You can almost easily get rid of them. And, Sometimes they're really resistant, sometimes because of the size. If you have a big cancer in the chest, you just can't get enough radiation dose in to get rid of it without you know, injuring normal organs around it. And so, so there's tremendous heterogeneity in between cancers. And we just understand why that is and how we can you know, exploit these different behaviors to make radiation even more curative in localized disease. How do patients end up um, uh, on their journey with cancer to, to somebody like you, you know, they, they go to, maybe they have a, a medical oncologist, a primary, uh, a member of their care team. And then, and kind of, can you tell, tell me how, when you enter into the picture and how do you get involved with working with patients? Good question. Yeah, so at MGH, our care is by design, multidisciplinary. So virtually all new patients, people who got just diagnosed with lung cancer come through our multi-clinic. We almost run them now every day to give people the opportunity, you know, just to call it MGH, you know, I have a new diagnosis, can you see me? Or I want a second opinion so we can get people in basically, you know, the next day. And, and so that's sort of the, the opening door. And then when, they, when, when people come in into sort of our multidisciplinary format, we have available every day a medical oncologist the thoracic surgeon and the radiation oncologist. Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be that every person sees all specialties. If you have sadly widely metastatic cancer and what you really need is systemic therapy, uh, immunotherapy, chemotherapy quickly, there is likely no need for you to see a thoracic surgeon or radiation oncologist at the initial visit, but you can. So that's one way, and that's the main way. And then the other way is, you know, um, if radiation is needed at some point after the initial diagnosis, after the initial therapy, you know, you develop a drug-resistant regrowth somewhere in the body or spread to the brain, 
then the thoracic radiation college is, is available uh, any, any, any day. I'm very fortunate to partners, uh, um, Melon Kandaka, who's a clinician scientist as well, and, and Katie Gain, who's a really gifted clinician. So we are sort of make sure that one, at least one of us is here um, every day during the week. So to give people what they need. Well, I think that sounds like a real, a real collaborative um, approach uh, to care, which I think, again, from a perspective of a patient, feels comfort in knowing that, you know, there are multiple people looking at their case, right, as they go through. And, and, and that's how I actually, you know, almost fell in love with this subspecialty. So when I was a resident in summer of 2001, I think, um, it was a smaller group then um, with only sort of one radiation oncology attending and the, the two main um, medical thoracic mm -hmm. oncologists were Tom Lynch. Uh, I don't know where he is right now. Um, he's gone to a few places in the Panosphidias. And I was just amazed how, you know, multidisciplinary the clinic, how collegial. So I would, as, a, as a radiation oncology resident, I would hang out with, with Dr. Phidias and, and the medical oncology fellow, and he would just teach us. And, you know, it, it was really an amazing team effort. And that's really, and, and we have this culture still here, not unique to MGH, most, most places embrace this, of course, but it, that's really an important, a really important aspect of how we deliver care and how you know enjoyable it, it is to work with I sound, I sound like an advertisement always but but how enjoyable it is to to work with uh, compassionate knowledgeable people who want to always go the extra mile just to find the best approach best to me approach for their patients it's, it's it's just very no it's don't it's don't worry about it it's not an advertisement it's i i love to i saw you I'm just know, when your face <laughs> lights up we know when you mention people like you know dr lynch and and again an, another common thread of people that i've that i've interviewed on my show is this this really boy from the heart talking about mentorship and you know apprenticeship and just sort of the people that you know have helped along the way you know, that have had a have impact on an informed practice, right? So you obviously have been touched so by important. many of those people as well. Yeah, no, I think you can, you have to have role models, people that influence you. You gotta, you gotta learn. You gotta keep learning. Learning never ends, I think. And that's really so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and so let's, let's talk about, you know, precision uh, precision medicine or precision medicine in the context of radiation uh, medicine, right? So, and I guess maybe we can, we can talk a little bit about your, about your research in the Willers lab, right? And, and, and how that, how you, uh, yeah, be, so why don't you, why don't you. I'd be glad that, to, yeah. I'd be glad to. So as you know, precision medicine in oncology means that you sort of match precisely the features of a cancer and the surrounding patient to a treatment that doesn't have to be like something that's genomically within the tumor. It can be other features as well, but it's this precise match. Practically, that means I have a pill and your tumor has a certain genomic alteration in an oncogene that sort of drives the tumor and that pill targets that alteration. So that's a precision oncology. And so when I first came up, sort of the, the typical radiation oncology response has been, or was, you know, radiation is precise already that's what we do. We precisely deliver the radiation 
according to an individual's anatomy, which is very different. Every cancer is geometrically very different in a person's anatomy, and a person's anatomy is, is very different from, from person to person. And so we've been doing this all along. We've been practicing precision medicine all along. And it's true. I mean, radiation has been doing that. You got to focus the radiation on the tumor and you got to not expose, you know, normal tissues and organs that surround the tumor to unnecessary radiation. And we've come a long way. I've, 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 I'm old enough now to have seen the, the, the transition from old fashioned, we call it 2D, two dimensional radiation therapy with very simplistic radiation field arrangements with a lot of side effects to where we are right now, which is really it's almost ultra precision. You can really pinpoint the high dose of radiation at the cancer and, and with very little side effects often um, to in the patient. And so it's, it's been a long way, it's been super precise, but it's not really the same concept that you have with that pill concept, right? So, so now the question is, can we actually practice this precision biology concept in the context of curative radiation. And that's really vastly, vastly understudied. As I mentioned at the beginning, you know, stage four lung cancer has been revolutionized by these targeted therapies and immunotherapies and you have biomarkers to tell you what to do. But for curative radiation therapy, so stage one, two, three, people who can't have surgery, everybody gets the same radiation and almost the same chemotherapy. But we know it, it works differently in, in different people. Some people do well, some people do badly, and still we give the sort of one size fits all approach. So we have the anatomical precision, but we don't have the biological precision. So if I knew your cancer was very sensitive to radiation chemotherapy, I don't have to go to high dose. Maybe I can pick a lower dose. Lower dose is good, shorter treatment, less side effects, still the same degree of cure. Great. If I knew your cancer was completely radiation resistant, meaning I radiate and the cancer just like, ah, whatever, I'll shrink a little bit and then I'll come right back. Maybe I don't need to give you radiation. I'll just, just we just go right to chemotherapy, unitherapy. And then the middle, if I knew, if I, if I just knew that you were a little bit more radiation resistant than the radiosensitive example that I just gave you, hmm. Well, maybe we can do something about that. Maybe I can just increase the radiation dose a little bit with modern techniques, you know, protons or whatnot. Or maybe I can use one of these targeted agents that have revolutionized stage four and combine it with radiation and then make the radiation a little stronger, maybe a bit more side effects, but also higher chance of cure. So this is the way we have to start thinking about um, localized cancer that can be cured. Why do we accept these sort of average cure rates, which are really not very good, and do something about it. Yeah. So, so the, the, is it the biological difference? Like if you have, again, I'm, a not, I'm not a scientist, so you have to bear with me, but, <laughs> but what I think I heard you saying is, you know, if there's, there's different mutations that a metastatic patient would have, are there differences in the different mutations is how you, how you look at uh, treating with radiation? Yeah. So we don't, we, it's not very well understood. So for, for, Stage four cancer, we know very well why tumors respond to treatment and why they don't. So if you have a mutation in EGFR, you know, you know that your tumor is driven by EGFR. It needs EGFR or mutated EGFR to survive. So you have a kill, pill you can disrupt them. 
if you're going into the radiation realm and like, let's say stage three localized lung cancer, we don't know what helps the cancer survive a large dose of radiation. Some cancers you radiate, even small ones, and you give them a high dose and they still survive. It's like, how can that be? And we don't know really very well these markers. It, 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 it may be simplistic, maybe there is not a single marker, although I think there's some really single markers like keep one mutation or KRAS mutation, which we have studies. There could be sing, simple, simple single markers that you can detect in your clinical practice. And if you knew what to do with it, like you know, modify your radiation dose, add something else, you could have an impact. But you know, I, I can't give you a good answer because it's just so understudied. Yeah. So if 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 two patients had had the same mutation EGFR, so are the you mentioned some some are just just resistant. Like, is it is it just is it because of the biology? Oh, no. Sorry, yeah, EGFR actually. So EGFR mutations in non-stage four lung cancer, which they do happen, they're not maybe as common, close, but then they're not, they're not uh, as common. Um, so there's some research out there. Uh, we've done a little bit also. So EGFR mutations actually tend to be not resistant to radiation. They usually, if anything, they may be a bit more sensitive actually. So they're actually relatively good actors if you had them and if you had to get radiation therapy. You know, it's more like other alterations like uh, KRAS, um, is you've heard of about KRAS, um, you know, it, that's very common in stage three, stage two, and stage one as well. And they tend to be more resistant in certain scenarios or keep one mutation. And then maybe other emerging mutations that we're learning about that could influence the, the sensitivity of a cancer to radiation. So KRAS, my understanding, so there's a, there is a lot of things I've been reading about, you know, with, with some targeted therapies, some drug therapy, um, in, in KRAS that look really promising. I think Amgen has something that's pretty exciting that's happening. And so where are, are we with KRAS? And, and I think I read somewhere you're active in pursuing KRAS as a biomarker um, to guide the use of radiation therapy in your practice. Um, um, yeah, so I think we've made tremendous progress as a field targeting KRAS. Uh, in metastatic cancer. It was undruggable until recently, and now there are, I think, at least four agents that can um, target, not all KRAS mutant tumor, but specific ones that have uh, certain mutations or G12C. Um, so that is the most common one in lung cancer. Uh, it doesn't, so it doesn't catch all the KRAS mutation, but it's a step forward, and there will be more drugs coming that, that target the other KRAS mutants also. And yeah, maybe you can use that to bring it into the radiation realm. So maybe we actually started a project on that. Not that you knew that, but we actually started a project on that to find out how can you maybe intelligently combine radiation uh, with that kind of inhibitor? Do you give it both at the same time that maybe could make radiation stronger? Do you give the radiation after the inhibitor? Maybe that you can use the inhibitor to make these tumors actually a little less resistant to radiation. That means for a certain dose of radiation, you can get more kill and maybe more cure. Or can you do it the other way around? Can you give the radiation first and sort of prime the cancer to get maybe more susceptible to the drug? So there are different ways to do that. And that, that could be very exciting. Um, one of the biggest, um, let's just throw this in as a teaser maybe. One of the biggest issues we actually have with this kind of research to go from the bench really to the bedside is that it's really hard to do mutational profiling 
of tumors in patients that have stage one, two, or three disease, meaning localized disease, because medical insurances do not pay for it. It's paid for in stage four because we have all these really amazing trials and drugs, and we know that you have a drug for a certain duration and it works, and so it has to be covered by medical insurance. But in stage one, two, three, we don't have it. So some, some hospitals cover the cost of this profiling, but most don't. And so you stand there, and, and if, you, if you do profile it, as if, you, if I say as a clinician, oh, I want to know what the mutation profile is, the patient can get a bill. That's not good either. So you're a little stuck there. You know, how, we, we, have to, we have to, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like chicken egg almost. I mean, you have to convince the insurances and the, the field that if I knew the mutation in this cancer, I could do something about it, high dose of radiation therapy, for example. But in order to get that data, I need to profile it to begin with. Otherwise, I, it's, it's hard to, to generate this data. And clinical trials in this realm are really difficult. So it's, it's tough. I, I'd love, that may be good for social media, to maybe do a little bit of drum rolls. Why, why can't we invest more into tumor profiling outside of stage four cancer, just to try to move things along a little bit towards precision medicine? Yeah, that's, you know, that's, I think we've talked about having, you know, things that are exciting and, you know, the treatment of stage four lung cancer not translating to early stage. And I think you just pointed out something that's super important. And I'll tell you the, right now in the, in the, in the advocacy zone that I live in, you know, with, with many of my fellow lung cancer survivors and, and many of them who are still in treatment who are in stage four, some in stage three. Um, but this notion of like screening is another issue that drives people crazy. But, but this, this, this idea of getting a, a genomic profile, um, yeah, I'm a champion for that because, you know, I'm no expert, but I'm telling you that I believe that every cancer patient deserves access to the genomic profile that could save their life. Right. And, and if it gets in the way because of insurance or whatever, it just drives us nuts. It just drives us crazy because with, with the state of advancement of, of, of technology and of, of these new treatments, you're talking about saving people's lives, right? You're literally and it's not a crazy amount of money. I, uh, so I, I'm just talking, I mean, I'm not sure what the exact clinical rate is, but um, you know, the actual cost of doing PCR-based profiling of a limited number of genes, it is only a few hundred dollars. Right. If you want to right. maybe eight hundred dollars right now at MGH, so it's not it's not entirely prohibitive, especially if you think about the costs of treatments for health insurance, like ten thousand dollars. I mean, you could you could say what's another what's another eight hundred? I mean, really, right? Yeah. Well, to me, it's it's an issue of of equity and 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 fairness because I know I'm grateful that I was treated at at a major academic center like Mass General, but you know, it, many people most cancer patients are treated in a community setting and are, you know, what are, are they getting access, you know, the same level of, of, of access. And we could talk about that for hours because it's something that, you know, I, I just being from Minnesota and having a lot of relatives who live in rural parts of the state, I just feel like, you know, everybody should have, you know, access to, you know, so. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a potentially tricky topic and I want to uh, venture off the trodden path here, but but even in the even in community settings, um, health insurance will still pay 
for and they may not, communities hospitals may not do their own molecular profiling. They may send it somewhere, but it 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 sh it can get done and it should get done. And so it's not prohibited by insurance. But the research portion, which is going outside of metastatic cancer and thinking about how we can use tumor mutations to further, you know, radiation-based approaches, which has to be done academic center. That, that's really where the where, where, where the challenge is. Yeah. So as far as radiation, do you have patients who uh, I would say are you know are scared of it or are they nervous about the you know, radiation is kind of a scary, a, a scary term. Do you get a lot of patients, you know, who are reluctant or just super anxious about, about getting that treatment? Yes. I mean, I think right, I mean, rightfully so to some extent, I mean, radiation does have a, the feeling doesn't sound quite right. Then again, chemotherapy, big surgery. I mean, there's always, I mean, any cancer treatment has inherent risks. Um, so people do ask about it, but, you know, we usually, usually, um, pretty good at predicting how somebody will do with a given radiation treatment course. And, um, that's where the technological advances come in also that it's pretty rare to have really serious side effects from radiation. They can, they can certainly certainly happen and they certainly have to learn a little bit still about you know radiation exposure to heart for example but but by and large nowadays when I get you know when I have a patient with you know stage three lung cancer I mean you know some sizable tumor in the chest and lymph nodes around it where in the good old days good bad days I don't know um, um, you know people would get really sick from large fields of radiation therapy very fatigued burning of the food pipe, really miserable. And in our days, actually, um, we figured out the sparing of the food pipe. These efforts was actually along the way a few years ago. People just almost fly through. And, and so, and, and generally, you know, with a lot of, I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years, so you have a bit of experience. You can tell somebody, you know, this will be not very bad at all. And sometimes you can say, yeah, you got to prepare a little bit for it. It could be a, a rough ride, but Generally, radiation is really an excellent, excellent treatment, both in the curative and the sort of positive realm of things, and and people do really benefit from it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. So, how how did you choose um, uh, how did you choose radiation oncology as your as your as your specialty? Oh, that was totally random. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you, yeah. <laughs> it was totally random. Um, it was, I was a student, a uh, medical student, and uh, I, I was trying to find a professor to supervise a medical thesis. Because in Germany, back then and still, if you don't write a thesis, you do not get the doctor title. And, and so I didn't have my thesis completed when I started um, practice in, in Germany. And so people would, on the floor would specifically say, Mr. Willis, come over here. So you have to have a thesis to have a doctor. I don't know. <laughs> Just the way it is. Um, um, so, so I was I was naturally trying to do a thesis, and you know I wasn't really quite sure what to expect. And so I was asking a you know a friend who you know was a professor, you know, would you supervise my thesis? And you know he was not in cardiology; he was a radiation biologist, totally random. And then I started it, and I, I fell in love with the biology behind radiation. I fell in love with the three dimensional. 
sort of aspect of radiation, how you come in through multiple angles to converge onto something in the middle of the body while curving around the heart and the esophagus to get there. I, I, I was really, you know, appealing and, and then also, you know, seeing it applied in, in, in patients to see how you help people. So that, that was, and it's, very, it's like surgery almost, like you have, a, you, have a, you have a real problem there with disease and you have sort of one shot at it to get it right and you do see benefit. It's, it's very surgical in its way. And so that's how I got to it. I, I made, imagine if my friend there, Professor Friend had been a cardiologist, who knows, I might have been. <laughs> Uh, well, it's, I totally relate to that, uh, this idea of this surgical nature. I, I uh, interviewed um, Dr. Brennan Stiles, um, who's a thoracic surgeon in New York and a friend of mine. And he talked about, I asked him the same question, like, how did he, how did he get, how did he end up, you know, wanting to be a thoracic surgeon? And he said, there's something about that going in and taking it and removing it. And and taking it, that's that. And so I, I think I hear the same thing from what you just described in radiation, right? Is there's, it's, it's, it's some, it must be very, it's a rewarding experience to be able to, to take something and, you know, eliminate it in a patient, right? So it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very similar. Um, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, so one thing that, oh, that I, I rant about, we may have talked about this when we talked last week, but I rant a lot about, you know, the, amount of time that people doing research spend doing fundraising and writing grants and all of that kind of stuff. Cause I feel like, you know, the process is just, uh, there's something wrong with this process where, you know, you have a 10 or 11, whatever percent chance of getting a grant, but you spend an inordinate amount of time writing and um, putting effort into it. And it seems to me that that's just a very inefficient way <laughs> to um, to keep advancing science, right? So, what has that been your experience as well? As far as how yes. hard it is, yeah. And if you know, if you know a better way, tell me about <laughs> it. Maybe after the podcast. Um, no, it's 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 hard. I mean, it has to be hard in a way because you can't give research dollars to everybody, so there has to be some kind of threshold. But it's it's gotten it's gotten really hard. Um, less money available, and especially now with COVID, obviously, it's, it's, it's just really hard. And there's also more research going on, appropriately so, but you know, all these targeted therapies, immunotherapy, and it's amazing. There's so much more opportunity. But yeah, the time invested, I, I can't, you know, I, I was lucky enough to uh, get a few grants. Uh, three years ago, we got a pretty large NIH grant to work on um, this idea of combining targeted drugs with radiation to make radiation stronger. And, in cancers that are a bit more resistant. But on the flip side, the number of grant proposals that are written <laughs> on weekends and nights um, and then did not get funded, oh boy. And, and then the older you get, I'm in my early 50s now, you, you really wonder, and your kids are you know, in the background, do I really wanna do this? And for how much longer? It's, it's, tough. it's, all, it's tough. It is tough and I, I always, I, um... I met uh, Dr. Fred Alt um, a few years ago, and I asked him, you know, what keeps him up at night, and he said, "Losing young people to to science, to research, and you know, but basically he's talking about, you know, it's the difficulty in in, in 
and funding labs, you know, and like if you to bring young people into your lab, you know, to support them, you know, the, the postdocs and so forth. So um, I just, I just feel like the, you know, there's philanthropic means, you know, there are people with means that can support research. And I feel like I, I would, I just wish there was more sort of that direct funding into, into, into the, the supporting the people in research like you, right? And it's not, I always, I've gone from understanding research for being like this big institution, but it's really, it's about the people. There are people behind, there are people in the labs over in Charlestown, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of people who are doing research, right? And so they, they have, they each have to, you know, basically fund their own labs to keep the research going. I just, I don't know, I just, I just wish there was more of that direct, that sort of direct funding model. Do you, do you get, do you get people who, who donate, who support your lab directly? Um, I, I've been lucky enough that some of the people that I've taken care of have, have contributed, which is very kind, nice, but yeah. I, I don't have a, I don't have enough philanthropic funding to really have continuous support in the lab. Yeah. Um, which is you, you're certainly correct. It's actually virtually impossible to run a cutting-edge lab with funded grant proposals from the government or other big sponsors. There has to be a second leg to stand on, which is either philanthropic funding or some supplementary funding from industry. It's It's really... It's really difficult without. And then I'm going to whind just for a second, if you allow me. And for radiation oncologists, it's maybe even particularly difficult because radiation has a sort of slightly negative connotation at times. And we are not really completely invested yet in combined. Well, it's not quite true. Radiation immunotherapy is really the way to go. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of promise there. But it's, we're not quite on the same level as some of the other labs that really have made a huge impact in you know, EGFR, ALG, or KRAS, G12C research. So we're a little bit, a little bit level below that, which makes it a little harder actually to attract um, philanthropy and, and industry support. And, you know, I think we have to be maybe a little bit more vocal or advertising of, of what we can do for patients to, to make sure people know that there is this other um, you know, avenue of research that can further curative radiation therapy. Yeah, I tell you, I've been involved with cancer research for, on the funding for working in the nonprofit world um, for the past seven years. And I know it's hard to raise money. It's hard to raise money for research. It, it just, it just, it's, it's not, um, you know, cause it's not support. It's not like, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, wrap your mind around it sometimes because, but research matters because even if you do some research and the, the result isn't what you had hoped for, at least you're still learning from that experience. You're still, and, right? you're yeah, still and you gotta, you gotta keep going. Yeah. You gotta just whatever. Just gotta keep yeah. How, how many people do you have in your lab? Uh, right now, I have uh, four uh, lab employees, uh, two postdocs and two technicians. And honestly, you know, being, you know, pretty, um, pretty engaged in the clinic, I couldn't run a big lab with 10, 20 people anyway. I just wouldn't have the bandwidth. Yeah. But, you know, to be 
productive to really make something happen. You probably need a five or six. But of course, now COVID hasn't helped either. I had a, you know, a visiting fellow and a visiting student last year, who of course, left during the COVID outbreak. And right now, it's really unclear whether we can attract back any people from overseas who are very eager, rightfully so, I think, to come here and, and train and, you know, be involved in one of the research projects. So that's hopefully that will come back at some point. Yeah. Well, what, what does precision medicine in lung cancer look like in five years? <laughs> um, well, five years, it's probably closer than you think. Um, I think we will, I mean, I think from the radiation perspective, you know, I, I really hope, I don't know that it will look like this, but I really hope that we will have a better understanding of why localized lung cancers have such divergent you know, responses to radiation therapy and that we will have moved away from this one size fits all approach that almost everybody gets the same sort of radiation program and that we can you know, be a bit more precise about the biology behind it. It's a nice concept yeah. to marry the yeah. biology precision with the physical precision that we already have. Totally. And you need both. I mean, so certainly what research, I don't want to hold you up, but what, what research has shown sort of adding um, targeted drugs like PARP inhibitors with radiation, which, you know, PARP inhibitors uh, can make radiation stronger by interfering with the repair, but the toxicity goes up actually. It actually, it, it, it shows you that, geez, you got to still work on the physics precision. You still got to keep fine tuning the way how you get the radiation through the body into the tumor. I think that will never stop, but you have to marry the two. Awesome. It's a tough question, I know, but so, I, so I'm gonna- You ask a question. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask one, one more question. I, I asked all of my guests and, and uh, outside of work, um, can you tell me something that you're passionate about or maybe something that people may not know about you? Hmm. Well, unfortunately I've dropped all hobbies <laughs> along the path of this being this ambitious clinician scientist is kind of a sad part. So I'm, I'm really left with appropriately so being very passionate for my family. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be married to, a, uh, to an amazing uh, a wife, Shruti Maningaya. She's a um, physician scientist also in reproductive endocrinology at MGH and School of Public Health. And we have uh, three totally amazing girls together. So that, that is my passion outside work. Awesome. That's awesome. Well, thank you for what you do. And thank your wife for what she does as well. Uh, we really appreciate it. And, pass it on. And, and, yeah, pass that on. Uh, but anyway, uh, Henning, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. And uh, to all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. And uh, we'll see you next week. But th Henning, thanks again so much for being on the show. Thanks so much uh, for having me, Dave. It's been a real pleasure.